This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is Secrets of the Most Productive People, a productivity podcast where we work smarter instead of harder and dissect exactly how to get it all done. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kate Davis. Today's episode is the next in our Reinventing Education mini-series, where we take a deep look inside what the private sector and public sectors are doing to address the education and child care crisis for working parents. Over this month, we are looking at one of the biggest challenges that the country is facing, the reopening of schools. So far, we've talked to both families and teachers about what they're dealing with, whether they are doing in-person or remote learning. If you haven't heard those episodes yet, they're both worth going back and giving a listen. The stories are really eye-opening and in many cases, really heart-wrenching. In today's episode, we're shifting gears a little bit to focus on the possible solutions. So we're going to look at both what businesses are doing to support working parents and explore ideas of what bigger systematic changes can be made on a public policy level. Joining me to discuss what's being done or what should be done in the private sector is Fast Company staff writer Pavithra Mohan. Pavithra, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So Pavithra, give us an idea of what working parents are up against, first of all. So I think the best way to do that is to tell you the story of Susanna Bradley. Susanna had built a career working for one of the big tech companies in Seattle, and she was really successful, but then she gave birth to three kids in the span of 18 months. And decided that I needed to scale back my career um, to just kind of manage all of that business. Mm -hmm. And also to to really enable my husband to scale up his. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he had the greater earning power. So we thought we would just kind of let him focus fully on that while I was managing the babies. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't want to stop working entirely. I didn't want to have a gap in my resume. Mm -hmm. And so I went to work... um, part-time as editor-in-chief of a couple of print magazines here in Seattle. She would work part-time for a few years until her twins started kindergarten in 2019. I ended up landing a writing and editing job at one of the big Seattle tech companies, and I was thrilled about that because it just it felt like I made this this seamless transition right back to where I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, but then COVID happened, and the schools closed, and I was suddenly managing Zoom calls for three kids, and trying to supplement the extremely bare bones education that they were getting through the public schools. So Susanna basically had three school aged children that all of a sudden needed to be homeschooled. Yeah, that's right. So when everything shut down in March, there was so much uncertainty. And we heard a lot from teachers in our last episode about about how they kind of didn't know what was going to happen next. Right. And so Susanna was saying that they were initially told that schools would be shut down for two weeks. And then it was suddenly six weeks. And, you know, during that time, Susanna had to juggle remote learning for three kids and a full time job all at once. And I knew that, um, you know, even six weeks of this crazy schedule was more than I could manage, Um, especially because I was pretty new in the job. And I just I didn't want to, you know, get off on, you know, start off with a bad reputation as somebody who was not pulling their weight at work when, you know, my manager had said, work these flexible hours, but it's business as usual. We expect everyone to be performing at the same level. So that really made me feel like there was no way I could win. And to add another wrinkle, the demands of her husband's job prevented him from being able to help with much, if any, of the now remote schooling. So she had to handle the bulk of the caregiving. 
so it was all falling on me and and I essentially had two full-time jobs um, and you know was incredibly lucky to be in a position where I could walk away but you know it also felt like a real personal tragedy because I you know I would much rather be working um, and my plan all along was to get right back to full-time work and I was thrilled that I did it but now you know not knowing how long this is gonna drag on I don't know if my career is just over See, this is something that we're hearing from a lot of women right now. And we've mentioned this a little bit in previous episodes, but even before the pandemic, women were overwhelmingly responsible for childcare and housework, both in heterosexual couples. And no matter if both people were working full time. And what we've been seeing is that's really been exacerbated now during the lockdowns and the school closures. Right. Um, We reported last year that men spend about a third as much time cleaning, for example, as women do on a typical day. And this inequality is evident no matter what women are doing, you know, across professions, whether they're working longer hours or earning more. And actually, even younger people whose views on gender roles have kind of evolved are still kind of traditional when it comes to domestic duties. There was a Gallup survey earlier this year that found that even couples who are between the ages of 18 to 34 are not any more likely to divide household chores equally than older couples, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's like, it's like, and I know there's been studies exactly like that of like millennials and millennial men have, you know, more progressive ideas and how they'll share uh, childcare and how they'll share housework. And they have those ideas, but then they're not actually playing out in their homes. Mm-hmm. And that was before, right? That was when, yeah you had all of these infrastructures in place. And then as soon as they crumble, as soon as it's gone to remote learning, it doesn't matter. Just like it didn't matter when all the systems were in place. It doesn't matter if both people are working full time. It doesn't even matter which person earns more money because, you know, traditionally that was like, oh, well, the the man's the breadwinner. So the woman's career is, is less important and can, you know, take a back seat to it. Even in those couples where it's not like that, even in the couples where the woman is earning more money, it still falls hugely disproportionately on on women. And and we reported, I know, just in May of this year that women who work full time and have a partner are logging, get this, 71.2 hours a week, which is 10 hours a day on housework and caregiving. Like, how does that, you, you, like, try to wrap your mind I around know. that if you're, like, working where full time. <laughs> exactly. Where are the, when are you sleeping? Like, if yeah. you're, so you're, you're working theoretically uh, eight hours a day, right? And, you know, because as we, as we just heard from Susanna, like, your, your job is, is maybe, if you're lucky, giving lip service to you can work a little more flexible hours, but they're still expecting the same output. So you're working full time still, you're working eight hours a day, and then you're logging 10.1 hours a day on housework and caregiving, which by the way, men in the same situation are spending about 51 hours a week. So 51 versus 71. So that's 20 extra hours women are putting in a week. Right. I think what's also interesting is that we are now seeing that happen. Like you're seeing in a home that men are maybe able to work uninterrupted Mm -hmm. and women just don't have that luxury. I know the New York Times recently wrote about how often the issue is like the children go to their mom first, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's, it's, it's so hard to kind of, especially when they're all, everybody is home. It's really hard to kind of extricate yourself from those norms and from what has just become, you know, 
the norm for their kids as well to just go to their mother first before the yeah. dad. And so it's, it's a really complicated situation. And we're seeing that play out right now um, as work and home have just kind of collapsed together. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. And like any working mother, you know, like I, I know I've experienced, I know like a lot of our colleagues at Fast Company that are, that are working moms have experienced it. Like even when you close the door, you put the sign up, you, you say you're, you know, can't be disturbed. Like that, the, the New York Times article is exactly right. I think it was it was titled "They Come to Mommy First. Like, doesn't matter. You still your day is interrupted so many times, and and then the impact that that can have on your career. You know, we've seen a lot of women then saying like, you know, how many months in are we now? Six or seven months? That like it's just unsustainable. So a lot of women are cutting back their their hours or they're quitting their jobs because they're they're seeing that this situation is going to go on for another year, probably, you know, remote learning is, is going to be the norm in most schools and it's an unsustainable situation. And usually when something has to give, it's the mother's career for two factors, you know, one, because there is a very real gender wage gap. And so traditionally in most couples, women will do earn less. So there are the the job that's easier to give up, you know, financially for the family. But two, even if that's not the situation, if they're the ones that are just, you know, spending 10 hours a day on childcare and being interrupted all the time, and they're, you know, they'll feel that they're at the breaking point. And a lot of times for a lot of people, if you have to choose between your children and your job, which is put in your face so much more in this circumstances, mm-hmm. you're usually going to choose your children, you know, especially when yeah. your, your hand is forced. Right, right. Yeah, I know there have been um, studies on this already, and women have had to reportedly reduce their work hours four to five times more than fathers have. And so, yeah, I think I think it's really an impossible situation. And I think Susanna, again, is a good example of this, where even if, let's say, your company gives you flexibility, they're ex- essentially expecting you to work a full day in addition mm-hmm. to helping your children with remote learning. Um, yeah. So truly a second shift. Um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's it's basically like, oh, you have flexibility. And what that ends up translating to is you work until one in the morning after your kids go to bed. Yeah, you know, exactly. and which is which is unsustainable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've heard just anecdotally from sources that, um, you know, a lot of moms, especially in industries that are just a lot more you know, cutthroat. They, they have performance reviews and promotion cycles that mm-hmm. are really rigorous. Um, there's just no option. They have to take a leave of absence or something uh, to kind of get through this period. And so I think a lot of people are, are really struggling with this. And we're also seeing how there is already this interesting response at certain companies um, from people who don't have children feeling mm-hmm. like maybe they're being expected to step up um, or maybe feeling like the accommodations extended to parents are not fair, you know? And so I, I think it's it's a very complicated situation. That we're in yeah, right now. I mean, and, and again, I think kind of like everything that, that we're talking about in all of these episodes and all of these issues are it's taking things that were already a problem and it's making, it's shining a light on them. It's bringing them to the forefront and it's, it's making them worse, you know, already, um, women were, were paid less than their husbands in most circumstances. Already they were the ones that were going to opt out of their careers or trim down their hours. Already they were the ones doing more childcare, more housework. Already there was a tension between parents and non-parents in the workplace thinking that, you know, parents get to get to leave at five or get to take a day off for, for, for a, a doctor's appointment or something. Already all of those issues existed and now they're just 
in the forefront and made so much worse. And, and so looking forward, do we have any idea how the, the pandemic will affect these issues kind of in the long term? So I asked Catherine Eister, who is the Director of Strategic Partnerships and Policy Initiatives at the National Partnership for Women and Families, about exactly this. You know, what might the long-term effects be? Well, the short answer is it's not good. (laughs) I think we're only beginning to really grasp the long-term effects um, that the pandemic and and really the the policy failings are having on, on women and families because there are the, of course, attention on the urgent um, crises and the urgent needs that are, of course, really unmet right now. Right. Um, but we know that the infrastructure that's needed to support working parents and caregivers is going to be, you know, decimated by by this um, by this time. Mm-hmm. Um, from, of course, childcare, but also, you know, the. Um, many women who are losing hours or being forced out of the workforce, um, mm-hmm. whether because they're being laid off or they're having to for childcare, I mean, they're not just going to be able to walk back to new or equivalent roles, right? We're going right. to be, uh, we're already seeing and we'll continue to see, you know, fundamental rollbacks in, in women's gains um, in earnings and in workforce and in promotions um, and, and leadership. And I think we have no idea how long it will last, but um, signs indicate that it'll be years, if not if not longer. So I should mention that the possible long-term effects for all women are not great, but it's especially bad for women of color who already face some of the biggest inequities in the workplace. And to just give some context, you know, we were actually at a point before the coronavirus hit where women actually exceeded men on payrolls. You know, there was over 50% participation in the labor force from women, and the coronavirus just wiped out nearly 10 years of progress on this front. According to the National Women's Law Center, women lost more than 11 million jobs in the initial months of the pandemic, a loss that exceeded the gains made by women since the last recession. So, you know, that just kind of sets it up uh, to show you what we're at risk of losing here. And women of color in particular have really suffered the most from unemployment during the pandemic. Even in July, the unemployment rates for black and Latinx women remained as high as 13.5% and 14%. So that means almost one in seven black women were unemployed as of July, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing. It's like, all of those decades of progress just wiped out instantly. And yeah, and when we talk about women as a whole, there's that. And then when we we drill down to women of color, it gets even worse. And, you know, that's a tale as old as time, right? Because even when you think about something, you know, like we've touched on the, the gender pay gap, of course, it's worse for women of color. Black women who work full time earn just around 61 cents for every dollar a white man makes. Uh, for Latina women, it's 53 cents. To give you a sense for uh, white women, it's about 79 cents. So that's really significant. That means, you know, what that translates into, we have um, equal pay day. Uh, it's a symbolic day during the year that that represents how long into the year women have to work to to match men's earnings for white women. That's around April. So it's about four months of unpaid labor for black women. It's in August. Yeah. So they're right. working essentially eight months of the year unpaid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Um, and, you know, it hasn't 
narrowed. This pay gap has not narrowed for the last 25 years. And now it's just at higher risk of increasing due to the coronavirus. Uh, and the other thing to note is, you know, we were talking earlier about parents who've been having to juggle remote learning with their full-time jobs. For a lot of these women, you know, they are not in the sort of jobs where that is even an option. They may not even be able to work from home. And so black women are typically more likely to work essential lower wage jobs, which just makes them more susceptible to both contracting the virus and also just suffering job instability. So it's a really, really difficult situation that they're in right now. And they, they don't necessarily have, you know, too many options. They can't just choose to work remotely, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. I mean, it's really the worst on every factor that there is. It's the worst for pay. It's the worst for, you know, having having the flexibility to work remotely, um, you know, being an essential worker who has to go in. It's the worst for, therefore, it's the worst for the risk of contracting the virus itself. And it's the worst for job instability. You know, it's the the sectors that are most likely to lose their jobs and, and have the highest unemployment rates. So it's this is such a huge problem for women and it's a such a bigger problem for women of color. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thing I would add in terms of jobs that have been kind of harder hit. Um, I've spoken to experts who've talked about how the public sector is being really sort of decimated right now. And that's not necessarily been the case in previous recessions. And again, those are often jobs that are kind of a path to the middle class. You know, a lot of black people tend to hold those type of jobs. And so, yeah, really everywhere you look, it's it's just it's bleak. Yeah, it's it's very bleak. I want to get back to Susanna for a minute. She left her job entirely, right? What, how is she coping with that? You know, she's frustrated. She took a lot of pride in her career, and she had always planned to return to full-time work. I never wanted to be a 1950s housewife, and I feel like <laughs> that's kind of, that's what I am now. And, and, you know, I think about the women in my family and all the great things that they achieved and how my mom raised four kids and was a professor at a large university. And I just, you know, I feel like I'm kind of letting down the women who came before me by, you know, not having a career and just giving up on, on what I had worked for. I think so many people can relate to being in a situation that they they never envisioned. I mean, you know, I'm I'm working from home. My husband's, you know, been furloughed. We we are in this situation where he's essentially a stay at home dad right now. And I'm, you know, the sole breadwinner. That's not what we had envisioned for our family. And it's not necessarily an ideal situation either. And it's still it's still a good situation. It's still, you know, a much better better situation than so many people are in. I think there's such a varying degrees of this isn't exactly the ideal I had envisioned for my life all the way to, I don't know how I'm going to survive. And I think, you know, everybody is, is experiencing kind of those ranges of this is not how I thought this would go, but let's start to kind of look forward and talk about some solutions and, and what companies, private companies have been doing to help working parents. Yeah, so there are a number of things that companies have already been doing. I think initially, you know, everybody was figuring this out as they went. And so many companies have been offering flexible hours and, of course, remote work. Some companies like Facebook, for example, suspended performance reviews and their usual promotion cycle uh, so that parents and other workers who kind of felt like they weren't able to, you know, work at 
their usual capacity, um, didn't feel like they were being unfairly evaluated on this period of time. And other companies have relied on either the 12 weeks of paid leave that was secured by the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, or they've introduced their own version of that. But I think a lot of those changes were kind of more short term, and now companies are starting to think more long term and figure out what they need to do to accommodate parents' needs for how many ever months, Mm -hmm. who knows how long this is going to go. And I think those those changes are going to be a little bit different. And, and it sounds like companies are just kind of starting to really think through what that might look like. Yeah. And for, for some of the other companies, I know that you you highlighted in your article, for example, Salesforce is doing kind of an, an expanded parental leave and they're offering backup child care for when your regular child care falls through. And I know that's that's also offered by companies like Google and Microsoft. And they've been doing that kind of for years and they're kind of continuing to do that. And then there's some a little bit more offbeat things that some companies are offering, like companies like Cloudflare are, are kind of asking employees what they want and offering them things from like meal delivery to online tutoring and and just these kind of like little perks to, to help through. But let's talk about what the kind of the gold standard of benefits for working parents is, which is on-site childcare. Yeah, what's really interesting about on-site childcare is that even some of the companies that you'd expect to introduce this, the companies that can afford to, that have spent you know millions or billions of dollars on their campuses, have not necessarily uh, invested in that. So Apple being a good example of that. And so I think this time is kind of making extraordinarily clear how useful a benefit that is for the companies that can afford it, of course. And so we are starting to see some people think about how they can um, introduce that in a way that is both sort of manageable right now, just given that a lot of people are not necessarily in offices, Mm -hmm. um, but also is just kind of easier to get off the ground. So one company that has been doing this already is Cisco, um, and they are continuing to keep their on-site childcare centers open. And they are still seeing a significant number of employees uh, bring their children to their childcare centers. Um, and that's something they've been doing for some time. They've also introduced a number of other options. You know, there's a paid program they're doing through Bright Horizons that will help parents with tutoring and with remote learning. And so I think they're really kind of exploring the range of um, childcare options that might be suited to whatever parents' needs are. But I, I think Cisco is an example of a company that's already been sort of thinking about this. Another company that I talked to that is somewhat sort of doing something interesting is they're looking into how to make micro schools more equitable. Um, you know, a lot of families have been turning to these pods or micro schools mm-hmm. um, in lieu of in-person schooling. And the issue there has been that it's it's the sort of thing that only some families can afford. Um, It's not necessarily accessible depending on where you live. And so weekdays is kind of trying to figure out what a more equitable solution might be and and whether there's a way to do that in in a way that, you know, reaches the sort of students who may not ordinarily uh, be able to consider that even. And so one thing that they're doing is working with companies uh, to try and figure out if they can set up a micro school at the company. So this is essentially on-site childcare, but it's kind of an easier way to set it up. Weekdays handles a lot of the administrative work there. And so it's it's easier for these companies to invest in an on-site center. And so Ada Academy, which is um, a company based in Seattle, has actually tried this out. And they've set up an, a childcare center through weekdays. And they've had people coming 
and in using it, you know, for the past few months. And it's been a great way to kind of ensure that the women who are in their program have not had to drop out and they've been able to continue working during this time. So I think that's probably the benefit that we might start to see more of and we might start to see companies adopt either some sort of an on-site option or something that's a little bit more adjacent to a company uh so there might be like a nearby childcare center that they might uh subsidize for parents uh things like that so I, i think we'll start to see more and more of that and i also heard from bright horizons which is responsible for setting up a lot of these on-site care centers for companies and they've said that there's a lot more interest in that but here's the thing there's only so much that any one business can do when we're talking about a problem that affects nearly every working parent and i I think it's also important to note that a lot of the companies that we're talking about and a lot of the companies that are able to even explore these options are those that have deep pockets and are largely white collar employers and so there needs to be a more comprehensive solution and and that has to come from the government but that doesn't mean that the private sector can't push for that and i think that if um you know companies and industry groups got together and said listen um every every expert has said we need 50 billion for childcare give us 50 billion for childcare I really think we would be seeing a really interesting um, change in the conversation. Yeah, that's exactly it. We as a country just haven't invested in childcare and education. The airline industry, for example, got $50 billion in the stimulus, which is more than triple the $13 billion that was set aside for K through 12 schools. And that's exactly what we're going to be getting into when we talk about the public policy solutions. We're going to talk about what an investment in childcare and education would actually look like. Pavithra, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your reporting. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'll be diving into the public policy solutions with Lauren Hogan, Managing Director of the National Association for Education of Young Children. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Joining me now to discuss what can be done from a public policy standpoint to address childcare and education during this pandemic is Lauren Hogan, Managing Director of the National Association for the Education of Young Children. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, so much to talk about, but I want to I want to start back before the pandemic, um, because this is not a new problem, right? Inequalities and shortcomings in access to childcare and early childhood education um, already existed, and they're kind of just been really exacerbated in what's going on right now. And I I know you know for example we've covered this a lot. The the cost and uh, and availability of childcare are two of the big issues. For example, before the pandemic, even the average working family spent up to 36% of their income on childcare, which by the way is more than uh, college and rent in most states. Can, can you explain a little bit more about the, the issues that we entered this pandemic with and, and who is most likely to be affected by these problems? Yeah, that's exactly right. We were very much in what we were already calling a crisis before the pandemic hit um, and in a system that works essentially for nobody. It doesn't work for families who, as you point out, are paying more than rent, more than college tuition, for housing, for childcare. And at the same time, 
a workforce that is providing childcare who is paid so little that nearly half of them are living in families themselves depending on public assistance. So it's not working for the businesses who need childcare for their employers. It's not working for the workforce that provides childcare who are skilled, talented, competent individuals who are paid practically nothing in their compensation. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not working for families who have a hard time both finding and affording quality childcare. And so if that's the situation that we entered it in where working parents can can barely afford childcare, those who are working in the childcare industry can barely afford to make ends meet, let alone, you know, pay for care for their own children. If that's that's where we entered it, how has it gotten worse since basically since March? Yes, absolutely. It has taken this system that, you know, where the operating margins were already incredibly thin to begin with um, and really put it into free fall, essentially. Um, at the very early stages, when everybody was sort of figuring out how to manage around the public health crisis, making sure that they were keeping their children, families and staff safe, there was initial closures, and so there was widespread closure within the childcare industry to, in order to keep people safe and follow public health guidelines. Slowly, childcare programs have started to come back online, but enrollment is way down and costs are way up. Um, and there's not room for that within the childcare market. There's not room for that in folks' budgets. And so they're looking to a public support system to help them bridge that gap between what it costs and the funding that they have and what they need isn't coming. Um, and so we're seeing every day, every day reports of temporary closures that are becoming permanent um, and folks who are just closing their doors, folks who have been pillars in their communities for decades in some cases, saying we love our families, they need us to be here because there are essential workers who need to go back to work and they need to have somewhere for their kids and they aren't able to stay open for these families because they cannot make it work. So can, can we dive into that a little bit more? Like explain the kind of the, the from the business perspective, how child care facilities and, I, you know, I suppose if we're talking about early childhood education, too, we're yeah. also talking about um, preschools and, you know, early, early elementary schools. But but let's focus, I guess, just on these child care facilities of how how the economic crisis has affected them. You know, I know that they, they operate on, on like razor thin margins and, you, you know, you've mentioned costs are going up. I am assuming that's, you know, the different PPE and like safety measures and having uh, lower enrollment to have, you know, class sizes smaller. Um, how are these these businesses coping with that? And, and what's the kind of immediate to long term look for that industry? You know, you mentioned some of these these closures are turning into to more full time. And I think I've read some statistics around the percentages of of uh, daycares and, and early childhood facilities that might close completely. And, and what would that mean then for all of the working parents, even I suppose when the, the pandemic is over and everybody you know needs childcare again? That's exactly right. And that's what we're saying. Like, this is a system that needs to be saved now, or as families come back to work over time, there won't be childcare left for to support their return to work as that happens over time. You know, we talk about an early childhood education and a childcare system in this country, but that's 
a misnomer. We don't have a system really in this country for childcare. We have a bunch of different programs and funding streams and places for kids to go where there is a combination of both care and education. And that's true from both the youngest, our youngest infants to the K-12 system where children are receiving both care and education as part of their presence in these in these programs that happen in both family childcare homes, so in home-based childcare, in center-based childcare, in community programs, in Head Starts, in pre-K, in K-12 systems. There are all these supports for kids. And one of the questions is helping programs who both receive funding from parents who pay for tuition for childcare, as well as federal and state funding streams that support their own budgets. And so they integrate these different pieces and families are confronted with their own reduced wages at this time, potentially they're on unemployment Mm -hmm. themselves. They're having a hard time meeting tuition standards and they're not getting the kind of increased support that they need from federal and state governments in order to bridge that gap. I will say that we hear from childcare programs every day who are incredibly innovative, figuring out how to get things done, trying to make things work for their kids. And yet they are, they are desperate. They are really hanging on by a thread at this point to try to figure out how to make their bottom lines work because so many of them are themselves small businesses. We do not treat childcare in this country like it is a public good the same way that we treat K-12. And Mm -hmm. so we've forced programs into being these small businesses where they are then required to figure out how to keep themselves open, how to pay their fixed costs of rent and insurance and liability costs while also making sure that they're able to provide the kind of high quality care with their employers. Personnel costs take a significant portion of funding in childcare and making sure that they have the kind of supports that they need to continue has put them into nearly impossible positions. So you bring up so many interesting things there. And I want the, the first thing I want to just back up about is is that that point that you you make that we we view childcare, early childcare, and early childhood education as a business in America? That once for and it seems baffling as to why. Like once a child turns five, they're in kindergarten and it's a it's a public service and they they can go to free public school. But before they're five years old, they're kind of your you know it's up to you sort of thing and 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 you know if you have the means to send them to a high quality childcare or high quality preschool or private preschool then they get that leg up and 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 that's that's funded by the families but there's no kind of government step in until children are 5 years old and we're seeing some like universal pre-k programs in like cities like New York City and in other states and cities but but yeah to to your point it's for some reason, we treat it like a small business. And then I want to talk about what you mentioned about the government um, support. So when when the pandemic hit, the the state and local governments, th- there was some money in stimulus bills, right, For that was earmarked for early childhood education, or these child care centers could uh, apply for the same sort of small business loans as other small businesses. How, how did it work? Yeah, so, and let me say first, just on the public good question, you know, we've done this, we've set this up as a country despite knowing the brain science that happens in early childhood education. We know for certain how much 
brain development, how much early learning happens from the very start of a child's life. And we've still, to your point, left it up to the individual capacity of families to navigate as opposed to seeing it as a collective whole and something that we all benefit from, despite, again, the knowledge not only about what happens in the early years, but also the societal benefits that happen when we invest in early childhood education. They're tremendous. The mm-hmm. return on investment from those early years um, is you know, it, it exceeds stock market returns. <laughs> I was going to say that's exact. It's exactly why you know I, uh, why some um, universal pre K programs are funded. It's actually with the argument of this will have a better educated public later on that that will serve the economic good of the country if you invest in early childhood education. Exactly. So with respect to the question on sort of the federal and state investments, the CARES Act, um, which provided $3.5 billion for the main federal child care program, which is known as the Child Care and Development Block Grant, that money goes to states who then made some really great choices in a lot of cases about how to make sure that that funding was going out to support the child care programs. So they were able to do things like ensure that programs had bonuses for programs that stayed open for essential workers. They were able to make sure that programs were able to be paid by the number of children who were enrolled before the pandemic versus the attendance of children during the pandemic. So policy changes like that, that really were able to support the literal existence of childcare programs for a time. In addition, and you mentioned the application for small business programs, the Paycheck Protection Program did absolutely make a difference for the programs who were able to access it and secure some of those loans. The issue with the Paycheck Protection Program for child care was mostly that it benefited programs very desperately. So there were entire segments of the child care market, particularly family child care, who just weren't able to access the program and so weren't able to access those benefits. The programs that were, which are primarily larger child care programs, they were absolutely helpful in sustaining the program over the time, but they're done and they been done for a while. Um, And so they've really reached that cliff of saying, you know, we had some support that helped the CARES Act funding as well. They've reached the end and are looking around and desperately needing the support to be able to ensure that their survival, their literal survival continues at this time. And then, and then can we talk a little bit about, you know, K through 12 or or specifically maybe for you, um, elementary school, where, what has the stimulus bill done for public education? Yeah, there's been a lot of support too. And I think it's great too, to talk about the connection between the childcare systems and our K-12 systems. Congress has the ability to make this time substantially more safe and less burdensome for educators who are working with children of all ages, beginning at birth all the way up through K-12, and to provide that significant additional federal relief for childcare and K-12 sectors as necessary. Um, They provided some support for governors in some separate programs that have, that really have been, the states have really been able to tap in order to make sure that they're able to support their K-12 programs. But, you know, we're in back to school week for a lot of folks and the challenges out there for ensuring that teachers 
again, of all ages have the ability to have the safe supports that they need to return is just is not there yet. And I know in the in the stim- various stimulus bills and in, in one that that as as we're recording right now is is being um, debated and proposed, uh, a lot of the public education money has been earmarked for school of choice or um, can be used for private schools and has kind of come at the detriment of some public schools or has been earmarked only for schools that uh, promise to reopen in person. What, in your opinion, what can be done for early childhood uh, before kindergarten and and what should be done for the K through 12? Yeah. So the there's been a real bipartisan support for childcare. I'll start with childcare. There's been some real bipartisan support for childcare. In the House of Representatives, they passed the Child Care is Essential Act, which would provide $50 billion in relief for childcare. And it passed on a bipartisan basis. And there's been substantial support, bipartisan support in the Senate as well, for ensuring that there is this stabilization emergency fund for childcare to really ensure that they're able to survive this difficult time. Now that is an emergency step. There's a lot that needs to happen after that. Going back to the very beginning of this conversation around the challenges and the crisis childcare was already in to ensure that we're really not going back to the crisis that already was defining our sector. On that combined with about, we need $200 billion for support in K-12 that really addresses everything from closing digital gaps for remote learning, to making sure that we're able to avoid cuts for education, to being able to ensure that teachers have the kind of safe and secure supports that they need to be able to teach children both in person and remotely throughout this time. So I want to to now kind of do two different scenarios. Uh, let's do a worst case, best case scenario. So the, the worst case, you know, we've talked about some of the short-term stimulus that that uh, schools in early childhood have gotten um, and that those things have run out. We've talked about the the crisis that we were already in. If we kind of continue in the way that we have been going, how do you see this pandemic playing out in the worst case scenario for early childhood and K through 12? A worst case scenario is really terrifying. Um, I, you know, my sense is that a worst case scenario situation in the earliest years means that to the extent that we have a system and have invested supports in these incredible professionals in early childhood education, um, that they are forced into moving away out of early care and education and that we wind up in a scenario where we're decades back from the progress that we've made and are essentially starting all over again, a system that um, is underground and more unlicensed, where there's children being put into more dangerous situations, where the folks who have earned their skills and competencies, their degrees over decades, where they put all the work in for that, that they leave the system um, and are sort of forced into jobs elsewhere when this is their passion and this is where they'd like to stay and build a career where they're able to support kids the way they know how and the way they want to and are really left with a decimated system and really terrible choices um, for families that they're left with as they will have to return to work um, and need to create lives for their families and just won't have options, particularly for women 
um, and the likely benefit that will have on female labor force participation, um, that we will just be set back decades from the progress that we've made and that we can continue to make. So that's the worst case scenario. And that's unfortunately some of these things were, like we said, we're already seeing playing out. Let's talk best case scenario. I think, you know, because we have shed light on some of these inequalities that have already been there and some of the untenable situations that we've we've been in with the cost of childcare, how do we come out of this pandemic with a childcare and education system that actually works for everybody? And what would that take? You know, you've, you've touched on the the funding that we need kind of in the short term in the crisis mode, but what would, what would a big systematic change look like? Yeah. A best case scenario is really that it does draw on some of the challenges of the pandemic that have really highlighted, I think the truly essential nature. And I know that word is thrown around a lot now, but the truly essential nature of childcare and the primarily women who provide it. Um, and the importance of investing in that and the buy-in, the commitment from everybody, from employers to the federal government, to states, to be able to say, this clearly is a system that needs to be resolved. We have to finally find solutions to the challenges that have plagued us for decades around these trade-offs between access and quality and compensation, that we have to come together to find solutions for this. One thing I would say is we have seen you know, in we talked a little bit about some of the policy changes that some of the states have made in response to some of the CARES Act funding. And to hold on to some of those good policy and financing changes that they've made in order to move forward and not return to how we've gone back, um, to really think about this movement towards seeing childcare as this public good, as a care and education system that functions from birth all the way through college and career, where we're paying for the cost of quality, where we're paying early childhood educators what they're worth, and really ensuring that we are able to have a system of support for early childhood educators that is clear, that is consistent, um, and that allows folks to move through a true profession that is driving investments to quality um, and really making sure that that's where the focus for our nation's investments in early childhood education are. This situation that we're in is kind of unequivocally bad for everybody, you know, but to varying degrees, even, you know, people in the the best of circumstances, it's still remote learning. It's not great. Right. But and then all the way down to people who are incredibly struggling. What what from all of that, you know, what do you think our biggest lessons we're going to take away from this this moment in time? Yeah, I will say, you know, NAYC, we've been doing surveys of the early childhood field since the very early days of the pandemic back in March um, and have just been able to track the challenges that the child care programs are facing. We've been able to share that with policymakers and the media to really focus on the threat of closures and what they need in order to survive. Um, And within that, when we ask the questions um, you know, about their increased costs and how long they think they'll be able to stay open if they don't get support. You know, They, in the comments and in their open-ended questions, just share with each other, with us, and then you know, in other forums with each other about all of the solutions that they're coming up with in order to meet their, the needs of their staff and their families and the children that they serve. They're keeping 
sight of the needs of kids in all of this. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the way in which this pandemic has really highlighted the importance of childcare and early childhood education and early childhood educators who provide it. And I hope that in all of the research and the data and the stories that we really have a conclusion about the need to support childcare, support families in the American economy through the crisis as long as it lasts and the recovery when it comes and then beyond. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I think if nothing else, this moment has finally made this a national conversation, has finally made the thing that, you know, the millions of parents have been saying to each other, saying it, saying it out loud, finally. That's exactly right. Well, thank you so much for, for being on the show. This has been, I could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. I think <laughs> any, any mother of young children has a lot of opinions about early child care. Um, Indeed we do. <laughs> but thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. So that's all for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to Secrets of the Most Productive People wherever you listen. And we want to hear from you. Are you a working parent, a teacher, a childcare provider? Let us know how you've been handling education in the pandemic by leaving us a voicemail at 833-582-FAST. That's 833-582-3278. Or you can tweet us with the hashtag FCMostProductive or send us an email at mostproductive at fastcompany.com. This episode was part of our Reinventing Education series. You can find all the articles from the series on fastcompany.com, including Pavithra's reporting on private sector solutions and more reporting on public sector solutions by staff writer Talib Vishram. If you liked this episode, please let us know by leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Secrets of the Most Productive People is produced by Joshua Christensen. 